today we start a new series called For Freedom. There's a, a woman that I've come to deeply admire named Jen Barnett. She runs a national ministry that's called Freedom Prayer. It's based in, headquartered in Nashville, but a year ago, uh, I think this month, a year ago, Jen and her team came to Memphis to do a training. And one of the things that Jen said, she said, we all have stuff. In her book called Freedom Tools, she just says, we all have stuff. You know what I mean by stuff? It's a really kind of polite Christian way of talking about <laughs> the problems of the world. And we all have stuff. But she gives this grid for understanding our stuff, and it comes from Luke chapter 15. We're not going to spend a lot of time in Luke 15, but it's a really helpful grid to just kind of jump into something really deep. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable that has multiple parts. There's a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son and then the older brother. All of that happens in the same set of teachings from Jesus. And she says this is really helpful for kind of understanding the ways that our stuff shows up. She says some of us are like the lost coin. There's a lostness to us, something taken from us, something that we can't find, some kind of wounding that happens to us. We're like the lost coin. And what the Lord does in Luke 15 is he presents this woman who's almost like the God figure, this feminine, clean the whole house, go and, and celebrate with her community, do everything it takes to find this thing, to heal this thing that was lost and broken. I have friends, some of my dear best friends in the world, uh, were sexually abused as children. People they trusted who betrayed them. Um, Jason alluded to some abuse even at the, at the table, and he was talking about the physical abuse and his, him and his mother. For many, many people, some of the stuff we have, we didn't put there. It was taken. It was, it, there's a wounding that happens. Jen says one of the key ways we do this is in areas of loss and wounding. We see it not just with kind of the really heavy stuff, like, like that kind of trauma, but we also see it in these other patterns and generational cycles. Um, one of my, my favorite teachers is a guy named Pete Scazzaro. And Pete says, Jesus may be in your heart, but granddad's in your bones. You start playing out your genetics in your life. And sometimes your father's and your mother's and your grandmother's and your grandfather's mistakes start showing up in your life. And there are these generational patterns that you didn't put there. There's some kind of loss and brokenness that was already there when you showed up to the scene. There's another kind of stuff that we have, though. She says it's like the lost sheep. This lost sheep, it wanders not through any real intent. It just wanders, and then it gets lost in a totally different way than something that's, that's kind of wounded. It's, it ends up in like this entanglement where it feels like you can't get back. It feels like you're trapped or entangled or wrapped up in something that you didn't even mean to get involved in. You wanted to try something. You were curious about something, and then that led down a path that you don't even know how to get back. I was teaching several months ago, and we were talking about sexual integrity. And a young teenage girl, she came up to me. And she was just weeping. She was, for the first time, sharing with someone that she had an addiction to pornography. And for her, this wasn't something she wanted. It wasn't even something really she sought out, but she said, I can't stop. It wasn't rebellion. It was just kind of a naive curiosity that led to a deadly place. It's like a lost sheep that gets, wanders too far away. Do you see the differences? There's in wounding and entanglement. But the next story Jesus tells is about a lost son, a younger brother, who's 
And unlike the sheep, which just kind of wanders, this, this guy is openly defiant and rebellious. He knows what he's asking for, and he chooses it anyway. Because he wants the short-lived pleasure of sin and all that it promises. But of course, the short-lived pleasure of sin quickly has this reverb that comes back and hits him. And it, it doesn't deliver on what it promises. This is a totally different way of being lost. The choices we make end up making us. Sometimes the choices other people make end up making us. But in this case, the lost son knows what he's asking for, and he asks for it anyway. Many of us are in that predicament because of either lies or deceit or, or choices or where we move further and further away from like God and his people and further and further in to self and self-satisfaction. The last story, the last part of the story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 is about the older brother. We, we saw wounding and entanglement and sin but the last picture that, that Jen presented was one of what she calls ungodly beliefs. These are things that we believe about God and ourselves that are just not true, and then they lead to these unhealthy coping mechanisms. You see, these untrue beliefs lead to unhealthy behaviors, and together those are ungodly beliefs. And it, it's basically the stuff that we do and the stuff that happens to us and how we process and make sense of the world isn't always 100% accurate. And so we have these really distorted ways of viewing God and ourselves. And these lead to trajectories of loneliness and isolation. That's the stuff that we all have. We all have stuff. And today, I don't want you to compare your stuff to somebody else's. The person next to you has different stuff, but we all have stuff. And I've got some stuff. A year or two ago, I sat down uh, because somebody invited me to what they called a prayer time. And they said, it was a, a training retreat that Kelsey and I were at in Nashville with our church planting trainers. And at the retreat, they just had this calendar item blocked off for three hours, and it said freedom prayer. And they were like, what is that? And they just kept saying, it'll be sweet. I was like, that doesn't help me know what this is. I don't even know what sweet means. What's this? Can you tell me what's going to happen? They were just out person after person. It's going to be really sweet. And it, it was, but that wasn't what I was asking. And so I sat down in a room with a couple of other men who were there to pray with me. Some of them had taken off work. They had put in PTO so that they could just be there with me to pray for hours. And they knew what they were doing. I didn't know what I was doing. They were like, it's totally fine. This is, this is normal. I remember being in your seat the first time I sat down for a prayer time. What we're going to do is we're going to ask the Lord to really bear witness to your, the Spirit of God can speak to your spirit. When you draw near to God, he draws near to you. And we want to see what God wants to do with some of the stuff in your life. And just ask him what's been surfacing in your life. And for me, the first thing that surfaced was the sin of pride. For, for me, and what the Lord kind of helped me to see and to understand and to combat, was that I have a deep-seated pride that manifests itself and trying to control and being the best because of some of the woundings that I internalized when I was a kid. I don't need to share all there is about my story today. Um, as we go through the series, I'm, I may kind of drop more and more of my own struggles, but I've got stuff. And this stuff is really deep in me. It's stuff that, it was almost like the Lord lift. it was like a reel 
I used to work in a movie theater back when they had reels before digital. And it, almost like a reel spread out. And he would just, it's like he lifted scenes in my life where this thing kept recurring and recurring. And it was just this deep-seated struggle that I have, I've just had for so long. What the Lord started doing in me that day, though, was offering me a path of freedom. Freedom is an event and a process. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He says, and we with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed in ever-increasing glory. Or in some translations, from one glory to another glory to another glory. I'm a work in process. Freedom is an event, and that is not my walk-up music. (laughs) Okay, sure. We believe you, Jess. Uh, The last category that Jen talks about, speaking of of this, she calls it demonic. And throughout scripture, uh, the spirits of evil use things like distraction to kind of move us away. They use things like evil and systems and cities and families. And even the evil spirits can speak to our hearts. And she says that the path of Jesus, the way of Jesus is the the promise and the way of freedom. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, Paul says, for freedom... Christ has set us free. This series, we're going to explore freedom, starting with life in captivity, starting with really trying to get a sense for where our stuff is. For freedom, I'm convinced, and this morning, I'm convinced that Jesus has the desire and the authority to set prisoners and captives free. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, and then we're going to kind of walk through four five, and seven. Luke 4, 5, and 7 today. Would you open up a Bible, maybe a phone, and we'll, we'll dive into this text. Now, I, I've preached on Luke 4 several times already, and we're only like a nine-month-old church. I, I think this is a really important passage. This is kind of Jesus' thesis statement for what he's doing and why. This is his opening inauguration when he goes into the Nazareth synagogue. He stood up to read in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 is what he's about to quote. He, it's handed to him and unrolled it. He found the place where it says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. He has made me the Christ to proclaim good news to the poor. This is the gospel, the gospel according to Jesus, where he sets the trajectory for what he wants to do. Take a look at this. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These words are all really important here that I highlighted. These words for freedom and set free are the same word. It has very different translations. So ESV will use to set at liberty. Some of them will talk about to release. Some of them will talk about to proclaim freedom. All of that, yes, all of that is what he's talking about here. In, in kind of the dictionary of Greek words, it says that this language of freedom can be pardon or liberty or forgiveness or freedom. But then look at this other language. The language of prisoners, or many of your translations will say captives, 
prisoners and captives, and the language of the oppressed. We're going to really focus in on these two groups of people, the prisoners and, and the captives, the oppressed. The, the prisoners here, it says that in, in the Greek dictionary, they're, they're captive, they're oppressed, they're, they're miserable. That's this category of person. It's people who are in bondage because in the context of Isaiah 61, stuff done to them because of stuff done by them. Stuff done to them because of stuff done by them. It's this full encompassing, you end up in bondage. In the Old Testament language, the language of exile, it's like when you end up in Babylon, here's, here's what this word is. It, it's for captives, for exiles, for prisoners and captives. The second word, though, is in this translation, the word oppressed. The word oppressed. In the Greek dictionary, it says this word is actually meaning to cause something to be broken into pieces to cause something to be broken into pieces. There, there's a really helpful kind of scene. Do you remember when there's a woman, she has this alabaster flask of ointment and she's gonna anoint Jesus before he dies. Do you remember what she does with the flask? It says that she, she breaks it. That's this word. This, this is the language of brokenness, of broken people who've, yes, they break things, but normally they break things because they've been broken by things. You see the language of prisoners and captives. But one of the really interesting things that shows up in Luke's narrative is that every person that he comes to meet seems to fall in one of these two categories. I want to show you just a few examples that, um, that Jesus kind of presents. Luke 4, 18 is the thesis statement for what he's about to do. This is the first thing he does. He announces what he's about to do. And then immediately in chapter 4, he starts setting prisoners and captives free. He starts doing the work that he just said he was doing. Jesus, Jesus, of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, he sets prisoners and captives free. Let me show you. Here's a couple of ways. One of the first ways is this man that says, was possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. And he's kind of taunted by this spirit. Ha, Jesus, what do you have to do with us? I know who you are. And do you remember what Jesus says to him? He says, be quiet, he said sternly, come out of him. And he sets this man free from a demonic power. It's not just demonic beings. The next story is of Peter's sick mother-in-law. Um, he visits Simon, that's his name in this context. And Simon invites him to his home and his mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. You see, it's just a sick lady. It's, it's not, not just like demon possession. It's also just a sick lady. And they asked, her, they asked Jesus to help her. And so it says he bent over, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. Look at this next story in chapter 5, verse 12. It says that there was a man covered with leprosy. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. And so Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the leper and he said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. The, the next story is of a man who was paralyzed in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. You remember, this is the guy, they couldn't get to Jesus because the crowds were so big and so they put him on a mat and they go in through the roof, one of the gospels says, and they lower him down to Jesus and the <laughs> put right in front of Jesus. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friends, your sins are forgiven. Do you see this way of being captive? None of these people chose this. 
There's a a man who's oppressed by evil spirits. There's a lady who's sick. There's a man who's socially ostracized because of his leprosy. And then there's a man who's paralyzed who can just be moved around on a mat. Jesus sets every one of them free. He has the authority and the desire to set these people free. But if you look in these chapters, there's a totally different way of, of having stuff, of being in bondage, of being captive. Take a look at these people. He, he shows up to, to Peter, and he gets on the boat, and he does this miracle in the sea. And this is Peter's response. Simon Peter saw this, and he fell at Jesus' knees, and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. I am a sinful man. Because the people were so astonished at what Jesus had done and what he was doing. And he says, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. You will be fishers of men. The next story So once again, that paralytic. What he says to the paralytic is, your sons are forgiven you. And this makes the crowd go nuts. They're like, who can forgive sins but God alone? Something has happened that people are thinking, who can do what this man is claiming to do? And so to prove the claim that he's forgiven his sins, he says, rise up and walk, and he does. But do you see that there's, there's another thing that's holding this man back besides his paralysis? It's his sinfulness, and Jesus deals with both. The next story, in Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. He's also called Matthew in other places. And so he goes to Matthew or Levi's tax booth, and he says, follow me. And the Pharisees see what he's doing with tax collectors and sinners, and he's having big parties and banquets and celebrations with them. So they say, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come for sinners to call them to repentance. One more. In chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, it describes this woman as a woman who had a sinful life. This woman, it says she's a woman of the city, a woman who is known as a sinner. Whenever she shows up in the room, the people in the room, they say, if you knew what kind of woman this was, you know that she was a sinner. This woman, by all accounts, in, in the commentaries about what this is describing, is a prostitute. She's just well known for her choices and what she's done in the community. But Jesus takes this woman, and he has this opportunity to both lift her up and rebuke the host that won't have anything to do with her. He tells this story. He says, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them do you think will love him more? And the Pharisee replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. He says, you've judged correctly. And then he looked at the woman who was kissing his feet And he says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. You see, there's two ways to be captive. Jen uses this language of prisoners and captives. People go to prison typically because of something they do. Captives end up in bondage because of something done to them. Do you see the difference? You see, captives are people who are experiencing the fallenness of the world in things like sickness and illness and death. They're people who are experiencing stuff that they didn't choose. They're, they're oppressed by someone outside them. These are, these are captives. They're, they're taken hostage. 
prisoners have done something that led to their bondage. But for most people, we experience one or two or both of these things pretty often. We're either prisoners or captives or both when it comes down to it. We all have something. But what Jesus does to both groups of people, to prisoners and captives, is he promises them that I am here to set you free. We see that Jesus has the desire to set people free no matter what kind of bondage you're in. He has the desire to do this. Just take a look at some of these these phrases whenever he talks to these people. He says, the things done to you, the things done by you. He says, this is why I came. I was sent here in order to proclaim freedom for prisoners and captives. When, When the broken man comes to him and he says, if you are willing, and Jesus says, I am willing. This is what I will. This is what I desire. There's a woman who has, in chapter 7, verse 13, there's a woman who's just mourning. She's weeping because her son is dead. She's a widow. She has no one left to provide for her. She has no heir anymore. She is destitute. And it says that Jesus' heart went out to her. Jesus has the desire to help broken people. Jesus has the desire to set free captive people. He has the desire, but he also has the authority to do it. When there's a demon, it says that he rebuked him sternly. Whenever it talks about Jesus forgiving sins, it doesn't just focus on his grace. It focuses on his authority. Who has the authority to forgive sins on earth? And Jesus is saying, the son of man, I do. I have the authority to forgive sins. When the centurion, he has a sick servant. And he says, Jesus, I know what it's like to have authority. I can just say, go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. And he says, I know you are a man of authority. Jesus has the desire, he wills for you to be set free from the things that haunt you and hold you captive. And Jesus has the authority to break you free from these things. The Lord wants to come and find us, whether we are there because of wounding, there because of entanglement and just a naive curiosity, there because of rebellion, or there because of these unhealthy coping mechanisms that we've adopted. Jesus wants to come and find you and break you free. That's the picture of Jesus that I see in the Gospel of Luke. And it's not just the Gospel of Luke. This is the picture of, of Christ our King throughout the whole New Testament. For freedom, Christ has, Christ has set us free. You were called to freedom, brothers, Galatians 5.13. Now, the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Jesus desires your freedom from the things that haunt you, from the things that hound you, from the struggle that you can't escape. He wants you, and he has the authority to help you step into freedom. There's two ways of being captive. Um, the things done to us and the things done by us. Uh, picture it like this. Um, picture a home. After all, this is oikos. Oikos is a biblical word that means home. So picture a home where you get to live life with God. In this home, you are loved. You have just a sense of, of nearness and comfort and presence with the Lord. And in this home, it's, it's just really amazing. You get to live with God. There's two ways to be captive in this home, though. You can open the door in And something can kind of be let in or somebody can invade. But you can also open the door out and you can invite. The things done to us open the door and invade. The things done by us, we swing the door open and we invite. And both of them fracture life in the home with God. Does that make sense? 
There's prisoners and there's captives. And most of us are, are both. But Jesus has the desire and the authority to set us free. The other interesting thing about prisoners and captives is that Jesus doesn't set anybody else free. In fact, he says, I didn't come for the people who don't need it. <laughs> I didn't come to call the righteous. I came for sinners. He, he tells Zacchaeus much later in, in the Gospel of Luke, he says, I came to seek and to save the things that are lost. There's only two, two ways of being saved. You can either be a prisoner or you can be a captive, but he doesn't save anybody else. So if, if you're worried that, you know, it's just me, maybe what I've done is blocking me from a relationship with God, or maybe the things done to me are a sign that God doesn't want a relationship with me. No, it's actually quite the opposite. If you are the one sitting here thinking, well, I don't have anything, take note of his words to the woman in Luke chapter 7, that the one who is forgiven much loves much. He says, I came for the broken people. I came for the prisoners. I came for the captives, and I'm going to set them free. But how does Jesus set free? How does Jesus set free? In Luke 4, he uses this word freedom. I'm, I'm going to set free. I'm going to proclaim liberty, right? All this language of freedom. But in Greek and in, in, in Luke's text, the language of freedom is the language of forgiveness, and the language of forgiveness is the language of freedom. And I mean, they're the same word. <laughs> the word forgive and the word freedom are the same word. Forgiveness, freedom, setting free is the means of getting freedom and forgiveness. Let's talk more about what that can look like. Jesus sets the prisoners and captives. One, one just quick note before I, I move on to the really, the how. What's striking is that the people that Jesus encounters, it's an event and a process. It's already and it's not yet. He, he can walk away and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In, in Luke chapter 7, or again, like in this range of text where he's showing us all the prisoners and captives. There's one prisoner, his cousin John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, I want you to just confirm. Go send messengers to Jesus and say, are you the one who is to come? Are you the future hope, the, the great glorious one who's going to rescue us? And he says, just tell them what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame are walking again. The deaf are hearing. Tell John what you see and this will confirm. But you notice what he doesn't do? He doesn't set John the Baptist free. <laughs> There's an already and a not yet. There's an event and a process. Jesus is doing the work of of, of freedom fighting, but it's, it's from one degree of glory to another. It's, it is fulfilled, and the fulfillment has started, but it is not yet finished. All right, so how? How does this happen? What does this look like? I just want to share a few stories from a couple of Yale professors. This first one is a professor, I think she's a professor of psychology, and she's a non-Christian at Yale University. Her name is Laurie Santos. She says, whenever I get sideswiped by events in life that suck, if I get sick or I dent in my car or lose my keys, I try to remember the Stoics. Stoics are ancient philosophers. They, they taught that we shouldn't just surrender to ill fortune. We should embrace the setbacks of life and feel pride in our ability to cheerfully bounce back. But sometimes that isn't so easy especially when the tragedy that befalls you is the fault of another person. She's saying it's hard to be a stoic when somebody betrays you. It's hard to just say, no, I, I'm a resilient person. I'll just take the hit. 
She says, when people around us cause us hurt, it's not hard to become fixated on them and their act of wrongdoing. We might feel affronted, angry, betrayed. We almost certainly will want justice for that person to pay some price or make amends for what they've done to us. But in most situations you'll face at home, at school, in the workplace, that justice usually won't come. So we end up carrying the negative emotions. We ruminate over our injury. We stay angry with the perpetrator and even risk letting the situation poison our closest relationships with grudges and feuds. Psychologist, she says, and if you're thinking that none of this sounds like a recipe for a happier life, then you're right. <laughs> the science unsurprisingly suggests that caring all these feelings around has a negative impact on your physical and mental well-being. But there is something described and explored again and again in one ancient religious tradition, Christianity, that's hard but ever so effective strategy, you can forgive. See, so that's where the science comes in. It's really quite remarkable. The research suggests that forgiveness has huge effects both on our physical health and on our mental health. Physically, there's evidence for reductions in things like cardiac stress. You get better sleep once you've forgiven. You can see improvements in immune function and less fatigue. And then mentally, there's evidence for decreases in depression and emotions like anger, increases in good emotions like hope and compassion and self-confidence. You see, a, a secular stoic psychologist is saying, Christianity has something that's really important for the rest of us to hear about the things that are done to us and the things that are done by us. Forgiveness. She's kind of coming from an outsider's perspective, but this is, this is if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, this is really central to the teachings of Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus, right here in the middle of our section, he says, I want you to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you won't be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Repeatedly, Jesus teaches about forgiveness like this. The Lord's Prayer. I mean, every day, many of us pray this. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. But then right after the prayer ends, he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive their trespasses. Your trespasses, rather. Peter's confused by this. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he told the story of a man who had an insurmountable debt forgiven. And then he goes to his friend over a tiny debt and he refuses to show mercy. That man is thrown into debtor's prison and he's told he has to stay there all his life. Matthew 18, 34. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the teachings of Jesus, but it's also the way of Jesus. As Jesus is on the cross, as we reflected on at the table. And again, Gospel of Luke 23, verse 34. He says, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. A little later in... Luke's kind of second volume is called the book of Acts. 
Acts chapter 7, we see another scene where Stephen is, is being murdered. And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Forgiveness is central to the way of Jesus. Paul says in Romans, Beloved, never avenge yourself, leave it to the wrath of God. Instead, if your un- enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, it's, it's all over. I mean, you and I, I, I think, if, if we've kind of been following Jesus for any length of time, we know that forgiveness is the heart of what we're doing. And yet, forgiveness is so difficult. Resentment, Evan Rosa says, revenge, take down, pay back more and more, especially, he says, in our, in our culture right now, kind of this post-2020 where our eyes are open to the systemic evil around us, there's this growing awareness of systemic, repetitious evil, and we're likely to think that the expectation or obligation placed on a victim to forgive the offender demands too much, that releasing the offender from their crime is unfair and only makes it possible for them to continue harm, that it leaves the scales of justice tipped towards oppression and chaos. Maybe forgiveness is actually part of the evil, many are saying. But, he says, perhaps there's a different way of seeing forgiveness that's empowering and freeing for the victim from the past and offering not demanding a way that transcends self-interest and corrosive resentment. What Miroslav Volf calls unsticking the deeds from the doer. Can I tell you about Miroslav Volf? Miroslav is a Croatian theologian who's a professor at Yale. Uh, Almost all of his books are reflections on forgiveness in really kind of heady, weighty ways. If you want like a a deep dive into pain, trauma, forgiveness at a national level, you should read his book called Exclusion and Embrace. Because he was writing about his people who were involved in a civil war where they were just murdering each other. The, The Croatian civil war, and he's trying to make sense of how do we put things back together. And for him, as a Christian, he says this text is so important, Ephesians 4.32. The Christianity actually has the way forward for national problems, for family problems, and for interpersonal problems. It's forgiveness. He says this, for me, was because of something that happened in my childhood, something that really brought this home. Um, His big brother was five years old. He says his big brother was like the the happiest kid in town. Everybody loved his brother. And so much so that some of the soldiers, they kind of just, they took him on little joy rides on on their equipment. But one day on one of these joy rides, a soldier brought his five-year-old brother and there was an accident. And his brother was just traumatically injured. Uh, Miroslav's dad, he he took his, his boy in his arms and he ran 20 minutes to try to find medical help. But it wasn't enough. His five-year-old brother died. And he says there was this deep rage, especially in his mom. But he says something happened in my mom and dad. This almost a rage that had occurred. He says one of the most significant things that happened in, in this story is that after my brother was killed, both my mother and my father, independently of each other, decided to forgive the soldier. They sought the soldier to talk to him, 
So it didn't remain simply something that happened within their own selves, but it came a gift that they offered to him. He says this was a gift that they did give. His father, uh, shortly after this, the soldier was released of duty, and he was kind of sent, and he was just overwhelmed by guilt. And his dad, it says he traveled about a half day's journey to find this man so that he could bear witness to this gift in person. He was released from the unit, but now he was released from this weight. He was completely devastated, Wolf says. The soldier was clearly deeply remorseful, and when my father spoke to him, he experienced a kind of release. He says, so did my parents. But it wasn't just an event. For his parents, it was a process. It was an event and a process. He says, forgiveness isn't a one-time event. It's a messy process, and it's in this messiness, in this gradual character of forgiveness that we actually grow into forgiveness. He says forgiveness isn't so much an act as it is a practice. It's a practice. He says at night when the demons would come, the rage would come back to my mom. And so she would have to remind herself, and the text that she would quote is this one. It became her mantra, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. She would preach to herself this message of Scripture. And in doing so, forgiveness didn't just become an act or an event, but it became true. And it became freeing. He says, I don't think there's anyone who experienced as much of a gift as I did. As the little brother who's growing up in the home of a mom who's in a rage, who's deeply wounded. He says, there is no person that benefited more from forgiveness than me because forgiveness allowed my mom to live in the here and now again. He says, you can't change what has happened. Time never runs backwards, but you can unstick the deed from the doer. That's all forgiveness is in Wolf's mind. It's unsticking the deed from the doer. It's separating the deed. I'm not going to hold you accountable for this thing anymore. I'm going to treat you as if you did not do this thing. And then it's the practice of making that into a reality. I think one of the, the, the greatest gifts that we can practice is forgiveness. Jason kind of referenced the practice of forgiving oneself, the practice of forgiving others, and this, exp- this experience of the grace of God that is then shared with others. But man, it's hard, isn't it? It's a choice. It's a process in ever-increasing glory. There's a second tool I want to tell you about today, though, also. It's the tool of prayer. If you want to be free, I think the New Testament shows us the two main tools for freedom are forgiveness and prayer. Forgiveness and prayer. Uh, Jen Barnett, she calls prayer like first aid for freedom. James chapter 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. One of my favorite passages this month has been Hebrews 7.25. He, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to him because he always lives to intercede for them. He is able to save to the uttermost. Why? 
because he always lives to make intercession. You see, when you go to the, the Father, the one who made you, the one who has redeemed us in Jesus, we don't just go to the Father. We go through the Son to get to the Father. He always lives. The resurrected Jesus is ever before the right hand of God, always bearing witness to his justifying, righteous-making, merciful work of what he has made you and me into. He is always living. There's not a moment where you can approach God where you, if you are in Christ, you do not come through his mediatorship, through his intercession. There's not a moment where God looks at you in any other way except through the righteous-making, blood-cleansing atonement of Jesus Christ, which means that when you draw near to God, he draws near to you just as he does his son. He draws near to you just as he does the one who's at his right hand. You want to get close to God? He says, come, I've made the way. I've paid the price. The way he sees me is now the way he sees you. Come in boldness. Let us draw near in full assurance of our hearts because our hearts have been sprinkled clean by his blood, he says in Hebrews chapter 10. This mediator makes a way for us to get to God. Prayer is a tool of freedom because he sets us free so that we can approach him in boldness and confidence and in purity. Freedom prayer is the effort to bring both of these together, forgiveness and prayer. It's an environment where you, you sit down and you try to draw near to the Lord and you, you ask, like Romans 8 chapter 14 says, you ask to cry out, Abba, Father, and you come close, where the Spirit himself can testify with our spirit that we are God's children. And when you draw near to the God of mercy and love who views you as his child, there's, an, there's a power that comes from him. The power to forgive, the power to set free, the power to heal. He wants to heal your brokenness. He desires it. I am willing. And he has the authority to do it. He may not finish the job in your first prayer time. He may not finish the job in your first encounter because it's an event and a process, but the Lord wants your freedom. Today, I want to invite you to do a couple of things. If you're interested in a prayer time, could you let me know on Slack or my email, which is in the bulletin? And we'll try to set that up. I'll I'll send you the link to, to sign up. But mostly today, we need a team of people who are ready to pray with this freedom first aid. To just pray with people. And the way to get trained in this, it's, it's not that you have to be anything special. You just need to show up to the training on November 11th and 12th, Friday evening, and then most of the day Saturday, we're going to have a training event. This can be eye-opening for your own story, but also for the stories of the people you love. This can be eye-opening not only for your story and the people that you love, but I, I believe that the Lord will use you as a conduit of freedom to help other people. This is a ministry I'm really excited about seeing take root and bear fruit in our, in our little church because I, I think this is where we reconcile people back to God through what Jesus Christ has done for them. Jesus sets prisoners and captives free. All right, would you stand? I want to pray for you. And then if you have children, please just make your way down and pick them up. And you're welcome to hang out as long as you can. I hope that you will experience this church and these people as being welcomed home so that we can point you to the Father who welcomes you back home. Oh God, our Father, God of mercy, 
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. Set us free from our bondage. Reveal the points of pain. Plant seeds of hope. And begin something in this church that can transform us deeper and deeper into the image of Jesus and have a ripple effect throughout this city. That this church and we, your people, could be known as a people who are ambassadors of freedom. Who take up the cause of freedom fighting through prayer and through forgiveness in your name and for your kingdom and for your glory. Would you begin a good work here in this church through this ministry? Would you help us, move us, empower us? In Christ's name we pray, amen.